this is Danny Korchmar from The Immediate Family. And I'm Steve Postel from The Immediate Family. And I'm Leland Sklar from The Immediate Family. Hi, it's Wadi Wachtel from The Immediate Family. Hi, it's Russ Kunkel from The Immediate Family. You're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Michael Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From the LA Times, everyone hates Ticketmaster. Is everyone wrong? And from Hypebot, calls to end fees that venues charge artists to sell merch grow louder. Now, Jay, we've just mentioned two things, which it seems like they're looking to talk about two stories. Oh, no, my friends. No, no, no. There's so much to talk about. These are deep stories. We've got so much to talk about. But we are glad you're here. So uh, at the push of a button, we are going to start the show. And that button gets pushed right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, on the air, 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 on for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, Jay, we are coming off a very exciting event that we went to. When was that? I've already lost track of time. It was last weekend, I guess. It was last week, right? Last and, week, uh, that's right. Yeah, and, and thanks to the immediate family for that cool intro. I know we've used it before, but mm-hmm. it's it's such an honor. Um, for those that don't know, you know, there's a new immediate family documentary uh, coming in. You and I got to see a screening of that directed by Danny Tedesco. Mm-hmm. What did you think? Oh, my goodness. Well, and we should probably mention, if you know the name Danny Tedesco, you might know it, you might not, but uh, Danny's father, Tommy Tedesco, was a super famous studio musician, uh, and he was in a group known as The Wrecking Crew, and Danny did a g- great documentary called The Wrecking Crew. It was long after his dad had passed So good. Away. Fantastic. Uh, and then this really is almost kind of, so The Wrecking Crew really focuses on, on the on the on the musicians that played on all those records in the 60s. Oh, so good. It's such a good documentary. And then it took him a long time to get it out because as we know, so many of the great songs from the 60s had to be licensed. And boy, it's an expensive venture when you're making documentaries on music yeah. artists and yeah. especially something like that that covers all kinds of different labels, different periods. Uh, anyway, this yes, it is on the immediate family, but the members of the immediate family re- were really kind of like the wrecking crew of the 70s. And that's what yeah. I loved about the documentary. It's certainly about what they're uh 
they're doing now, but it really starts off talking about how things had changed from the 60s to the 70s and what was going on yeah. in the studio scene and the switch from kind of uh, to, to a lot of singer-songwriters. And it was just a great documentary. And, and yeah, and we're, awesome. we're there in the room. Like, you know, Jackson Brown is sitting, you know, six feet from us mm-hmm. and Peter Asher was there. And, you know, what I thought was just amazing, for those that don't know, you know, the people we're talking about, it's Danny Korchmar, it's Leland Sklar, it's Steve Postel, it's Waddy Wachtel, it's Russ Kunkel. I mean, I grew up looking at albums and seeing those names over and over. And here are a few guests from the documentary, just off the top of my head, and you may remember more, but these are people that they've played with, toured with, recorded with, that were in the documentary. And (laughs) check out these names. Keith Richards, Neil Young, Phil Collins, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, James Taylor, Carol King, Stevie Nicks. Oh yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. it was really great. And you know, and and you mentioned <laughs> album credits, and that's kind of the difference, as they point out in the documentary, between the '60s era session guys and the '70s. By the time the '70s rolled around, they were getting included on album. Uh, jackets, the names that they played on the songs and the records, and so suddenly they're far more uh, in in the visible co- in the consciousness of people of record. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. So it was really great. Yeah, and that couldn't happen today, could it, Mike? Because with streaming and even with digital downloads, when they were the main configuration, that metadata that I, I hate using that term for this, but you know, we grew up with these albums and yeah. you would look on the label and see who wrote it, or you'd look in the liner notes and see who was playing the different instruments that's sort of gone away. Uh, not sort of, it's really gone away in the digital era. And I hope that that can come back in some form or another, because I think it's really important. And I was having this conversation with a friend of mine last week about we're in the digital age mm-hmm. and if I wanted to see every song that Brett James wrote or every song that Chris Lord Algie uh, worked on, it's not simple to do that. Some DSPs have some cool playlists with those people in there, but it should be much easier for us to say, well, what, what songs did Russ Kunkel play drums on? We should be able to click a button and find out. Absolutely. Absolutely. We should also mention that one of the neat things about it uh, was not only the uh, watching the screening of a great documentary, but also hanging out at United Recorders, one of the one oh. of the most famous recording studios in the history of the music business. And yeah. uh, if if you don't know United Western, so it's two studios that are kind of two doors apart, Western Studios and and United that combined a number of years ago, and then was sold and it was referred. It was it was called um, Ocean Way for a while, and I think was Western called Cello. Anyway, they're back to the old names, uh, and you know, just so much magic had happened in those studios, and it's yeah, there's nothing like going to hanging out in recording studios. It's just the yeah. vibe. It's oh, the hang. but just the history. So Oh, yeah. And seeing seeing the photos and the gold records on the wall. And it's just, it's a magic place. And I remember you mentioned to someone that was working there in the staff, they had this really great staff that was catering this thing. It was so, so good. Um, but they had this United um, t-shirt on. And yeah. you said, you know, do you sell those? And like, no, these are just for the staff or whatever. And I don't know if you noticed, but we got this like gift bag. And when we I were, did. when I got home, I looked in there and went, oh my gosh, there's a, a United <laughs> shirt in there. That <laughs> totally. is so cool. Cause I would have paid for that. That was awesome. Oh yeah, it was lovely. And of course that's on the, and then it's also on the property of the Sunset Gower um, television studios. And, you know, when you get to hang out on, in the places where magic is made, 
oh, it's just, you just feel it, you know, you just feel yeah. that excitement. And we're, of course, kind of history buffs. And and I think our friend Elliot Kendall, who was there, mentioned that the Monkees television show was was recorded right. on those on the same sound stages there. And uh, right. it was just a lovely evening. And it's a great documentary. Gosh, it's fantastic. It really I can't wait until show. it's, you know, it's released wide. Right now mm-hmm. they're just, you know, doing film, film festivals and these screenings. And I think this was only, I think they said it was like the seventh or eighth time that they've seen it they've done it and they're still doing some little edits i guess to it but the music's phenomenal the story's phenomenal um i can't wait for this thing to go wide me too and the folks at united did a fantastic job of hosting it and oh yeah oh the caring and fred fred crischel and and david helfant uh props yes killed it huge props and thanks for including us we were uh rightly honored to go hang out there was a really fun, fun afternoon uh, or evening, I should say. I did not want to leave, Jay. <laughs> yeah, no, that was good. No, was we had great. a great night. Exactly. But boy, the stories that we're going to talk about today, they are in-depth. And listen, every week you do such a great job with with putting together the newsletter. But again, the, the stories that were in this week's uh, roster of, stor- of stories are just fantastic. Man, there's so much yeah, to read. It's, Make it's sure such, you spend time yeah. going over all well, those stories. If you're there's, a reader. there's, you know, as you and I talk about, you know, Ricky Warwick's song, there's three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. And a lot of what we're talking about today, there's been some misinformation that's, that's out there on that. Um, before we jump in, um, I wanted to talk about a couple of things. One, um, Glenn Peoples Ledger uh, mm-hmm. newsletter, which is it's really great. It's one of my favorite sources. Comes out every Friday. You, if you subscribe to Billboard Pro, you get a few of their cool newsletters, and and this is certainly one of them. And I just want to talk about the beginning section of his email this week, just to give you an idea. He says that a youth movement of sorts hits music's top ten tracks in the U.S. last year, even as music consumption generally shifted toward older recordings. You know, catalog is 18 months or older, although most of that catalog that's being played is in the last five years. But he says that the average age of a track in the top 10 on-demand streaming songs in the U.S. was nearly five months younger last year, 346 days younger than in 2021, 492 days. So that's according to a billboard analysis of Luminate data, right? We talk about Luminate, it used to be MRC, it used to be SoundScan. It's, it's called Luminate now. It's all the same thing. So in 2021, the top 10 tracks were evenly divided between current, defined as 18 months or, or less, and catalog, older than 18 months. So as of December 31st, 2021. So Glass Animals Heat Waves, released in June 2020, was number five that year. The number one track, Dua Lipa's Levitating, was released in March 2020. The number 10 track, The Weeknd's Blinding Lights, was released in 2019. Right. Now, in 2022, nine of the top 10 tracks were current releases, meaning they were less than 18 months old on December 31st of 2022. Heat Waves was the lone catalog track in the top 10. The top track, Harry Styles as it was, was a spry 276 days old. <laughs> Steve Lacey's Bad Habit, the number nine track, was the youngest at 185 days. Levitating still resonated with listeners, but slipped to number 20. So outside of the top 10, however, most the most popular music of the year continued to get older. From 2021 to 2022, the average age of the top 25 on-demand tracks 
increased about a month and a half to 470 days old, excluding a notable outlier. We've talked about this before. Kate Bush's 1985 recorded Running Up That that Hill, the number 16 track of the year, uh, including uh, Kate Bush's (laughs) 13,620-day-old as of December 31st of last year. Surprise hit. The average age of the top 25 tracks more than doubled to 996 days. See, this is the stuff, you know, Glenn is one of those guys that digs into the data. He doesn't just uh, report on, you know, uh, what everybody else thinks. He looks at the data himself. So you can read the full article on Billboard Pro, but uh, we love looking forward to every Friday um, once we get the Your Morning Coffee podcast, I'm sorry, the newsletter out, you know, we really look forward to uh, Glenn's The the Ledger. So we wanted to touch on that. And uh, you and I are going to a cool event uh, this Friday. Oh, we are. We are really looking forward to it. This is the Recording Academy presents Merc Mercuriatus at the Grammy Museum. And uh, we're going to hang out down there and listen to that that conversation and uh, always fun to go to the Grammy Museum. I've oh yeah, it's such a great a great times. room and it's a good hang. It's a yeah. good hang. Yeah, and we'll get to we'll get to talk to Merck. You know who we had on this very podcast. He's a, a friend and colleague and somebody who we look to, uh, who's been shaking up the music industry obviously for a while. And Fran, his wonderful publicist, and mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a a fun night. And by the way, you've got another behind the set list with boy a band that I really like. I'll let you tell talk about that. Oh well, thanks for bringing cool. that up. Um, I love doing the uh, behind the set list podcast um, with uh, with Glenn Peoples over at Billboard, and we have so many great conversations because a lot of these artists don't really get asked about their set list. Like, why do you open with this? You know, why are you doing this cover tune? And how does your set list vary by different venue or market or whatever? And there's always super interesting insights. And this last week we talked to John Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a great guy. What a fantastic conversation, you know, with his philanthropy and with the way that he grew up on, you know, the damned and the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. And every now and then, you know, they would throw in some of those uh, kind of early songs uh, into their set. And, you know, like one time they covered uh, the Plimsolls Million Miles Away, which was so cool. Yeah, I love that. Song. But they've got so many albums and so many hits and all of that stuff that it, really they have to focus on making sure that the audience gets what they came for. But uh, I think that drops in the next week or so. But keep your eye open for the Goo Goo Dolls behind the set list because it's a it's a really cool interview. And thank you for bringing that up. Out of Buffalo, New York, the Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah. And by the way, we are so uh, fortunate to have wonderful sponsors that help us get the show up and out every week. Could not do it without them. Uh, our podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. We want to take this time to congratulate Banzoogle members for surpassing $100 million in commission-free sales of music, merch, and tickets through their websites. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in just minutes. All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more so you can easily add content from your other online profiles, live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start 
at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can jump over to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Yes, sir. We're also brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. You betcha. Bands in Town. Over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yes, sir. And uh, finally, uh, the Music Business Association, who puts on the Music Biz Conference. Actually, for more than six decades, the Music Business Conference has been the point of origin for inspiration, collaboration in the music business. Join us there, Nashville, May 15th through the 18th. We'll see you there. That's right. Jay will be there, and uh, hopefully he might be taking that leisure suit, that 1970s uh, polyester leisure suit that you can sport sometime. God, it's a good look for you. Uh, So big thanks to the Music Business Association, Banzoogle Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Gosh, we really appreciate everything they do for us. And you of know, course, it's like that hair club uh, joke, you know, like not only am I the president, but I'm a member, you know, it's like we actually use these products and services and all platforms and, and have it been. makes it, yeah, it makes it super cool. Before we jump in, I had a couple of conversations and I know you know about this, but I want to tell our audience about uh, what's been going on this, this last week. So there was an announcement made um, between Plus One Records and uh, Acceleration and they formed this strategic partnership. Um, and if you haven't been following Acceleration, it's it's some of my favorite people in the music industry, like Amy Dietz and uh, John Burke and Glenn Barrows and some of these folks from, you know, In Grooves and uh, formerly Concord. And and they've got this really super cool company. But but I'll let I'll let Johnny tell you about it. Um, Plus One Records is this really cool indie record label. And like I said, they're doing this uh, strategic partnership. Um, with acceleration. So I had a chance to talk to Johnny about it. And this is what he said. I'm talking with plus one record CEO, co-founder Johnny caps from one of the coolest record companies on the planet. Johnny, it's so good to see you. You had a big announcement this week. Tell me about it. Thank you for having me on Jay. Uh, big fan of you, of the newsletter of the podcast and honored to be, uh, talking to someone that I listen to every week. Uh, Thank you. So yeah, we just announced a partnership between Plus One Records and Acceleration that we're really excited to announce. As the owner of an independent record label, I was looking for a partner to invest, not just financially, but operationally as well. I got into the music industry and decided to start a record label to discover, develop, and break new artists. But so much of my time and bandwidth has been going to the administrative and operations side of running the business, and not enough of it to what I want to spend my time on things like A&R marketing, creative and working every single day to develop and break artists. This new partnership with acceleration will provide plus one with operational resources and expertise from a very credible and experienced team. 
I talked to many of the usual suspects along the way uh, to find the right partner. I'm so excited to have found a partner who is truly independent and who shares what Plus One is about musically, culturally, and philosophically. I was looking to expand as a label to be a multifaceted resource for artists. Artists have a lot of options in 2023, and it motivates me to be better. We are very different culturally from the majors. We don't view developing artists like many of the, dis the distributors do who are in the volume business. I think there is room in this industry for independent labels who will move mountains for our artists. We have a passionate team of creatives who care deeply about the artists we work with, both their music and about them as people. What has been missing is the additional team and resources to go the extra mile to truly break new artists. Just in the past few months, Plus One has added two amazing marketing people, Kevin and Elliot, a sales team, David and Glenn, a senior level A&R, Dante. We have a great sync team. We're about to add an advertising person and a brand partnership person. I believe the growth of the Plus One team with the additional resources coming from Acceleration will make us an even better partner to artists. And honestly, that's what it's all about. Pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, it's it's really cool. They're going to throw gasoline on that plus one fire. And I have a great deal of respect for Johnny and his team. And look, it's a big deal because he's always been super indie. And this, you know, like Acceleration are getting involved in, you know, things like uh, Alligator Records and, and, and other, um, you know, side one dummy and some other really cool things. I don't have the list in front of me, but it, I know there's some really cool stuff that they're getting involved with. So I'm really excited to see how that kind of moves forward. And the other uh, conversation that you and I were talking about is someone that we refer to on this podcast pretty regularly. And that's Michael Huppy. Mm -hmm. Michael is the president and CEO of sound exchange. And we had a really cool conversation. I really dig him. Um, super down to earth. He's just like us. He's a music freak. And he's just one of those guys that you can have a great conversation with. And I thought it would be interesting because I meet people all the time and they're like, what's sound exchange? It's, <laughs> it's very important that Absolutely. you know what sound exchange is. And last week you and I were, we touched on this uh, American Music Fairness Act. And we've been talking about this for a while, how... If you're in the United States, you're a performer, you're not paid when your music is played on the radio, mm -hmm. um, only on the publishing side. And, you know, that's only true in countries like Russia, China, North Korea. It's it's not right. And there are folks, you know, like Michael and and so many other, you know, thoughtful people that are trying to fix this. And it made it into the Senate, this American Music Fairness Act, where it it died. And I just wanted to touch base with Michael on on that. So Here's, here's a little bit of my conversation with Michael Huppy. Mike, thanks so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, for those that don't know, Mike is the president and CEO of Sound Exchange. Um, tell us a little bit about the good work that you do at Sound Exchange. Well, Jay, I appreciate you having us on. Uh, Sound Exchange is a company in the music industry that sort of sits in the middle of music, data, and technology. We help make the modern uh, digital music system work a little bit better. The bulk of what we do is collect money from digital radio and pay it out to pretty much all the record labels and all the artists. We are paying out now over $1 billion a year, and we wow. uh, we are about 10 to 12% of the music industry in the U.S. But we do other things as well on music publishing, and we're uh, also doing creating products to help make the music industry work a little bit better. Fantastic. You know, I think most people are surprised to learn that performers in the United States 
aren't paid when their recordings are played on terrestrial radio. Um, and we were watching the American Music Fairness Act, and that aimed to kind of fix that. It failed in the Senate. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to that and maybe give us a sense of what's next for the AMFA. Sure, Jay. Well, you're, you're exactly right. The U.S. stands alone in the industrialized world for not paying the artists when radio plays them on terrestrial radio. And you're exactly right. Most people are completely unaware of this. So uh, the, the artists that bring the songs to life and create the recordings you all love, uh, when the 12, 10 to $12 billion FM radio industry plays the music, they send exactly zero to the performer. And it's, it's one of the biggest injustices in the music industry right now. So we have been fighting as, a, uh, as an industry for decades now. This goes back to Frank Sinatra to try to get terrestrial radio to pay for its main input, uh, which, which is only fair. It's a matter of basic fairness. The, you know, you get paid for your job, I get paid for my job. Artists who put their blood and sweat and tears into uh, recording should just share their fair piece in, in that $10 billion industry. So the uh, American Music Fairness Act was a bill last Congress to try to get radio, uh, terrestrial radio to, to, to do that, which would simply bring them into the same playing field as everybody else. You know, it, it's funny, you could be in a car and whether or not your favorite performer gets paid depends on which button you push on the dashboard, right? So if you're listening to, um, you know, satellite radio, the performer gets paid. If you click on a webcast or web stream through, you know, through your phone, the performer gets paid. But if you happen to click the FM button, all of a sudden they don't get paid. It makes no sense as a policy matter, and it's really a victim of politics. So what the, AMF, what the AMFA did last Congress was say, hey, Terrestrial Radio, you need to pay performers just like everybody else in the marketplace. Just pay them a fair, a fair price. It's based on a fair market standard. We're not asking for anything more than what's fair. Uh, and what it does is it actually even, uh, one of the things you hear is people worried about uh, certain uh, non-commercial or smaller radio stations, mom and pop stations. And the beauty of this bill is it pro provided a safe harbor for them. If they make under a certain amount, uh, I think it's one, one and a half million dollars per year, uh, they, they pay just a flat fee of $500 or less, sometimes all the way down to $100. It was really aimed at the big commercial conglomerates that make billions of dollars uh, paying with the artists. And you know, one, one other thing people may not know, Jay, because we don't pay artists in this country for terrestrial radio pay play. We those many Americans don't get paid overseas for terrestrial radio play over there. We estimate up to three hundred million dollars are are lost by American performers because our own country won't protect them uh, for over the air radio. Wow, thank you for that. And uh, Mike, keep up the good work. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, let's keep in touch. All right, Jay. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. You know, and it's it, it's nice to hear that because, again, like you said, so many people and, you know, to be honest, it, and I always kind of go, OK, what did they do again? <laughs> because it's it, it's another revenue source. It's, it's other revenue sources, I should say. Yeah. And it's important if, if you've got your music up to know what they're doing over there and that you are registered with them and they know who you are. And uh, that's right, because a lot of people are leaving money on the table and yeah. uh, you don't want to leave ever money on the table. 
No. And there is definitely, we've seen it over and over again, people who haven't registered for sound exchange or they haven't gone in and checked to make sure that Mm -hmm. their artist name or band name was spelled correctly. There weren't variations on it. Um, And it goes back like three years. So um, make sure that you're checking sound exchange uh, for that revenue. So a couple of really cool uh, uh, conversations this week. Without a doubt. By the way, the guy that I get to hang out with every week and sometimes multiple times a week is none other than my good friend, Jay Gilbert. He is my partner in this adventure here. He's a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the fabulous weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music Sony Music and Warner Music Groups, and of course, also Fox Home Entertainment. And it's always a pleasure to go to uh, events and to hang out with you and uh, and just chat about stuff. Thank you, brother. I feel the same. Um, we've had uh, some really fun times together. Um, this is Mike Etchart, if you don't know, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. Yes, indeed. Hard to keep, hard for me to keep a job back in those days, apparently. So, uh, <laughs> but boy, let's jump into the uh, the stories, Jay, because uh, this wow. this first one was perhaps not perhaps it was really one of the most uh, well rounded and interesting and deep articles on the entire sort of Ticketmaster situation that we've been talking about. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there on, and everybody's kind of piling on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that Live Nation Ticketmaster is perfect. No one is. But a lot of what you read in the press is misguided or just wrong. And what I love about this piece in the LA Times, and we'll get into this in a second, they really look at both sides of the issue. And it it really started with you and I. Um, We have a friend who's really close to the matter. And he sent us a note um, recently as this whole Taylor Swift thing blew up. And, and he said that, uh, you know, if you think there's value, um, in, you know, labels, publishers, PROs, digital service providers, managers, et cetera, you know, if you think there's value with them contributing to a recording, and I do, um, they comprise, you know, 80% of that streaming dollar, right. Then consider the analogous, uh, analogous, if I can say it correctly, in in live music and the ecosystem there. There are lots of different markets. You know, there's a lot of clubs. You know, there's thousands of clubs. And, you know, if you're not familiar with NEVA, that's the National Independent Venues Association. You know, but there's also amphitheaters and stadiums and arenas and sports, et cetera, et cetera. And there's also competition um, that you don't read about uh, very often, you know, for for ticketing like SeatGeek or Vivid, StubHub, uh, TickPick, Picolian. There, it's it's not like they're the only game in town, but there's a reason why they're the biggest game in town. And uh, one of the stats that jumped out at me when we started, you know, we'll dive into this story in the LA Times, is I had no idea that when all of these Taylor Swift uh, shows went on sale. There were 3.5 billion simultaneously uh, simultaneous attempts to buy tickets from either real human beings or bots. And there's just no system on the planet no. that can handle that. And here's the thing, and we'll get into the punching bag thing in a second because I think it's really uh, important. Um, when it comes to this Taylor Swift situation, and it's much more complicated than that, but let's use that for example. Live Nation, Ticketmaster, 
had communicated to Taylor Swift's camp that you might want to stagger this and not drop everything in one day and do it over a series of days. And they responded back that, well, we really want, you know, that press hit and that big number. And we'd really, you know, can't you please, you know, try to get this done? Can you do this? And they don't want to upset their customers. So they're like, yeah, I, okay, we'll, we'll do this. We'll, we'll get this done. So to, to just point fingers at one another and say, well, you told me to do this, or, you know, you told me you could do this. No one could have done that. Well, so let's let's put yeah. that on and aside we've, right we've away. both been in situations where you're dealing with artists and you want to please the artist. You know, you want to you want to you want to get to yes. <laughs> you know, you want to get to yes. And sometimes you do things against your better judgment. And I can totally see that conversation happening because I've been there before. You know, it's like, you know, I yeah, I know you like that image you want on the front of your of your packaging. And I, I, I think maybe we could do better, but you're in love with it. So we'll go with it. And then, yeah. And And remember recently you and I talked to Ryan Dusick from Maroon Mm five and he's written this great book, you know, on, on mental health and music and all of that. And what he said is that when you're beginning to pop, like Maroon five was, you say yes to everything. Yes. You don't rock that boat. And I think this has a little bit of that in there. Absolutely, absolutely. By the way, we should point out that this article for the LA Times was written by August Brown, who's a staff writer there. So good. My God, a lot of work went into this. And uh, like we were saying, there's just so many things that I found fascinating that I hadn't considered, that I didn't know. And um, yeah, I'll let you start. Let's jump into this because it's a... Yeah, so... Yeah, we're going to take, you know, just parts of this because yeah. there's he did such a great job of showing the history of, you know, like P.T. Barnum and oh, holy cow. I mean, he goes deep and this is a, a yes. real deep dive. But the one, well, the areas I'd love to focus on for our audience, music fans are not Ticketmaster's main customers. Right. The company signs contracts with promoters and venues to sell tickets to their events and they pay advances and fees for the right to do so. Many of the contracts are exclusive, but not all of them. The firm does not set the price of concert tickets. And that's something that you and I have discovered this week in a lot of articles, that there's misinformation about that. Let me just run that one more time. The firm does not set the price of concert tickets. Artists and promoters do. Mm -hmm. And while individual contracts vary, Ticketmaster splits its service fees with the artist venues and promoters. Very interesting. Case in point for Blink 182's reunion tour date at Bank of California Stadium on June 16th, the list price of a platinum ticket is $290. Add on a service fee of $42.90 and a processing fee of $5, and the price of admission, excluding parking and concessions, comes to $337.90. In parentheses, it says there's no charge to have the ticket sent to your phone, but other uh, but other shows can have delivery charges or facility fees as well. Right. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, the, so the service fee is intentionally kept separate from the list price for two reasons. To make the base price of a ticket appear more affordable and to create the impression that only Ticketmaster pockets that fee. Ah, but the ticketing company does nothing whatsoever that the act doesn't tell them to do. And that was from Bob Lefsetz. Fees were were created to create another pile of money, he said. Ticketmaster has been paid to take the heat. 
over that forever. So the public will never hate the act. And again, there were a couple of pieces that we read this week. There was another one in your morning coffee from the Washington Post. And the headline was Taylor Swift can stop slagging Ticketmaster. And that was sort of the point that hasn't been talked about much. You know, um, the Ticketmaster is really being paid to take the heat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eric Budish, an economics professor at the University of Chicago, uh, by the way, maybe the most well-known economics program in the country, who studies the American ticketing market, agreed that service fees are opaque and frustrating, but they're largely designed to insulate artists, venues, and promoters from criticism. Ticketmaster is effectively paid to be a punching bag, he said. Their fees find ways back to the artist or venue, and the artist chooses their ticket prices. And this is you know, Eric Budish, professor of economics at University of Chicago. And just to rewind, he said that Ticketmaster is effectively paid to be a punching bag. Uh, he also went on to say that primary ticketing companies, including Ticketmaster, they don't set ticket prices, right? We just mentioned that. They don't decide how many tickets go on sale, when they go on sale. They don't set service fees. Um, pricing and distribution strategies are determined by the artists and their teams, you know, like management. In most cases, venues set service, service and ticketing fees, and the majority of these fees go to the venue, not to Ticketmaster. Indeed, for as long as Live Nation has owned Ticketmaster, the portion of the service fee that Ticketmaster retain, retains has been falling, and the venue share has been increasing. Wow, I thought that was important. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, Ticketmaster grew so fast, in part because it was a good deal for everyone else in the industry, according to Dean Bugnick, co-author of the book Ticketmasters, The Rise of the Concert Industry and How the Public Got Scalped. Ticketmaster and Live Nation <laughs> are both unfairly criticized, he said. Fred Rosen, who was the original founder, thought he was a good partner for taking the heat, and he's not wrong. He took it on the chin for venues and promoters. Yeah. And you know what really jumped out at me is, you know, um, I know Jonathan Daniel. Um, he's, you know, one of my favorite music executives. He's been so instrumental at changing uh, how management is done, mm -hmm. you know, kind of in the in the mold of people, you know, like Irving Azoff and uh, some of those people who have taken on the bigger roles and responsibilities for management. Uh, than maybe years past. Um, anyway, uh, Jonathan Daniel, uh, if you don't know, uh, manager for Fallout Boy, Green Day, Sia, Miley, um, he used Ticketmaster and Live Nation to handle um, Green Day's uh, hella mega stadium tour last year. And he said, quote, if Ticketmaster gets regulated, you'll invite some new problems because Ticketmaster solved a lot of them. You'll still have websites crashing, whether it's Ticketmasters or Joe's Tickets or whatever. You know, verified fan, Ticketmaster system to kind of suss out actual humans from bot traffic and scalpers had worked for acts like Springsteen and Taylor Swift in the past. But even that system couldn't accommodate, you know, that three point five billion that we talked about. Exactly. He said, with Taylor, many more people signed up for Verified Fan than they had tickets for. It's a first-of-its-kind problem. He said, God bless Taylor. She's extremely popular. Several high-ranking concert industry executives who requested anonymity so they could speak freely about the competition said they suspected Ticketmaster erred in placing all the era's tickets, all the era's tickets on sale at once and allowing fans to pick their own seats, which led to bottleneck traffic. They also believe that Verified Fan database was 
was rife with resellers with fake email addresses. Yeah, and you know what I heard from a, a friend of mine over there is that there's kind of this average, and I don't know what the exact average is, but I think it's somewhere around between two and three is the kind of average number of tickets that a certain customer would buy. And he was telling me that with this Taylor Swift thing, that that number was exponentially higher. So you've got more people right. trying to buy more tickets and all of these transactions happening. And of course, that's going to create some problems. One 2016 study from the New York Attorney General found that more than half of the seats at an average show never went on sale to the general public. Wow. But instead, they were reserved for pre-sales, artist teams, fan clubs, or perks such as you know credit card users. And we saw some of that with Taylor Swift as well. Interesting. Right. And then this is a this is really important to consider as well. It says yet as me, as much as fans hate resellers when they're trying to buy, they love them when they're trying to flip their tickets. So yeah, it says we have to we have the tech to turn off the resale market. Just put names on tickets like we do with airlines. Buddhist said, you show ID at the door and you can only buy two tickets. So money doesn't go to brokers and there's no feeling of massive injustice. But the only reason it's hard is because no one wants to actually solve that problem. Exactly. If Congress decided it was worth putting caps on the secondary market, you wouldn't have the same pressure. Uh, this is what Budnick said. But when you can't resell tickets, people have issues too. Taylor Swift shows are not happening until late summer. I should have the right to resell my tickets. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, again, it's, it's you know, like a lot of these things, you just have to dig deep and... And really kind of, you know, follow the issues because it, it's not it's not a headline issue. I mean, it is a headline issue, but right. there's so many different layers that things you need to uh, need to kind of cover. So there's some yeah. precedent for ticking legislation like the 2016 Bots Act, which authorized the Federal Trade Commission to levy fines for automated ticket scalping. In 2019, the Department of Justice extended Live Nation and Ticketmaster's consent decree by five and a half years, mandating that they may not threaten to withhold concerts from a venue if the venue chooses a ticketer other than Ticketmaster. The Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice appointed an independent monitor to investigate Live Nation, which had to appoint a compliance officer and pay a million dollars for each violation of the consent decree. Uh, Live Nation repeatedly and over the course of several years engaged in conduct that in the department's view violated the final judgment the Department of Justice said back in 2019. The department will not tolerate transgressions that hurt the American consumer. Yeah. So a lot of Super uh, great piece. Um, and, and there were so many this week, but I thought this one was very, well, kind of even handed because- you know, Ticketmaster is not perfect, but it's more complicated than this, you know, this monopoly needs to be broken up and we need to punish them because my daughter's crying because she didn't get her Taylor Swift ticket. So August Brown over there at uh, LA Times. Times. Yeah. yeah, great job. And I did want to do a shout out to um, Bob Lefsetz. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been a fan and a reader of Bob Lefsetz for many, many years. And um I, I enjoy reading uh, what he puts out. I don't always agree with everything that he, he writes, but it's always entertaining and thoughtful. And on the, let's see, a few days ago, he had a, one of his uh, newsletters went out and it was titled Fixing Ticketing. And there were a couple of things that I wanted to touch on. Um, I'll take the first one, which is let's start with fees, right? He said, everybody on the inside 
knows that the real price of a ticket is the face price plus the fees. The, pr the promoter needs those fees to make a profit. But here's where Ticketmaster takes the blame once again. The hate is focused on the ticketing company when it's really the fault of the act. Let's use an example. A club show, $25 face value, $25 in fees. The act can side with the fan. You're getting ripped off. But the truth is the ticket really costs $50. It's just that making half of it fees, the act look like, looks like it's not overcharging and you know that's on the fan side when it's not the truth. Right. He says, of course, there are acts that would go to all in pricing, but unless there's uniformity, there's no solution, no happiness. Never mind all the other industries like hospitality that survive on fees. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And let's let I'll let you take the next section about bots, because yeah. I thought and then we can kind of move on because there's so much we could talk about. But I thought these two things were really important. So he says, so let's move on to the bots. Do you still get spam email? Even worse, do you get spam texts? Of course you do. We've been doing this Internet thing for decades, but spam hasn't been eradicated yet. Talk about money. Google provides Gmail, the number one email service. The company has tons of money, but even Google can't solve the problem. So if you think you can legislate bots away... And even if you have a law, without manpower, without enforcement, the law is toothless. Think about the IRS, etc. As for the scalpers utilizing these bots, the truth is both promoters and fans like scalpers. On risky shows, promoters sell directly to scalpers to take some of the risk off the table, especially in sports. And the public likes to know that a ticket is always available if they're willing to pay. And the public wants to be able to resell scalp its own tickets. So toying, so tying the ticket to the individual and disallowing resale, the fans are not happy with this. Yeah, and that's what it, the LA Times piece said the same mm -hmm. thing. So um, it'll be super interesting to see what happens as we move forward. But we just wanted to make sure that you, um, our loyal listener, um, knew that knew that there are uh, multiple uh, sides to this story. <clears throat> And it's not as simple as just Ticketmaster bad, you know. Um, the other, the last thing I'll say really quickly is there's been a lot of heat on dynamic pricing, which is kind of like what hotels and airlines do. And, you know, we we railed against it. You and I talked about uh, a Paul McCartney show uh, last year where, you know, you just couldn't get any affordable seats for it. Mm -hmm. um, but what we were, uh, you know, educated on is that, They've tried that where you take a section and they sell it very inexpensively and then it just ends up on the secondary market. Right. And so it's supply and demand. And as much as I hate spending that kind of money on uh, a concert, that, that's the business. Right. In the case of Taylor Swift, it's clear that there are just far too many people that want the tickets, more ticket, more people than there are tickets that want to go see the show. And, you know, if you've taken that economics 101 class and you've supply seen the demand right? supply and demand exactly when you're talking about pricing that is very dependent on supply and demand so there we have it so anyway all right yeah. jay on to the next story because this is somewhat in the same milieu shall we say this yeah. is from from hypebot calls to end fees that venues charge artists to sell merch grow louder yeah, yeah let me explain to, to those that don't know when you're a touring artist it's pretty common for you to have to give up a percentage of your merch sales to the venue. And it varies wildly. Um, and it varies by if you are a 
Well, if you're an indie artist and you're playing mm -hmm. a small venue and you're selling it yourself all the way to, say, a, a big arena where they're supplying manpower to sell it. But it is it's difficult because, you know, the difference between selling your merch, that could be the difference of, you know, uh, sleeping in the van and sleeping in a hotel or, yep. you know, it's it's for a lot of artists, it's half of their revenue. It's really, really important. So I just wanted to kind of tee up uh, the story with that. Well, and I, do, I want to swing back around to what you, kind of was, what you just said. And you and I were speaking before we actually hit the record button, which is I wasn't really aware that like for, for big concerts, uh, the venue typically provides uh, the booth and the individuals to actually sell the merch for a given artist. So, you know, like a lot of things in life, there are indie artists and there are superstar artists and what the India artists experiences are often very different than the situation for superstar artists. So that is something to keep in mind as we kind of have this discussion. So the article yeah. starts with a testimony before the Senate judiciary committee and the operator of more than 10 live venues have added momentum to a movement demanding that music venues and promoters eliminate the fees they charge artists to sell merch at shows uh, venues and promoters typically charge between 15 and 35 percent of sales for the privilege, in quotation marks, of selling merch at their own shows. Even though it's the artists that draw on the fans doing the buying, in most instances, the artist, the artist must also pay to, to staff the merch table. So again, we're more now in the indie world of merch and concerts than the superstar. Yeah, yeah, yeah to start that off. And, you know... Um, Clyde Lawrence said that the argument is that the venue is providing us the retail space for us to sell our merch. Um, and Lawrence told the Senate Judiciary Committee this week that we're providing all of the customers and yet we receive no cut from their many revenue streams, like, for example, parking or food or alcohol or maybe even their own merch. Right. His testimony inspired the operator of 10 music venues and several significant festivals to take action in a move that he says will cost the company several hundred thousand dollars a year. Ineffable Music Group CEO Thomas Cousins announced that they would no longer charge artists 20 percent for selling merch. We are on the ground and hearing from artists every day, he said, whose portfolio also includes a management company and record label. Uh, we are seeing how much the costs of everything have gone up from buses to hotels to flights. So even though the club business is a marginal business, any action we can take to help ensure a healthy, vibrant concert ecosystem is important. This industry only works if artists of all levels are able to afford to tour. Yeah, that's a huge step. So kudos to Thomas and, and his team over there. Because look, he points out something that those on the outside may not know. You know that when you go and get gas, it's more expensive or your groceries are more expensive. Everything's more expensive. But man, we've talked to artists about tour buses that have doubled and tripled yep. in, uh, in price. And, and then that, of course, that fuel to fill them up and hotel rooms and food. I mean, it is, we've talked about this. It's so hard uh, for these artists to make money on the road that some of them are actually dropping off. Yeah. And then if you have to give a percentage of your merch, um, it, it really doesn't seem fair. Now you touched on something that I thought was important. And that is that there are different levels of artists mm -hmm. and, you know, 
if you're in this larger venue and they're providing a lot of manpower to load your merch in and to man those booths, and there is a value to that. So I'm not saying it should be zero, but I don't think that 30% is the number either. No, exactly, exactly. And so um, this week's spotlight on the merch fees adds momentum to a growing hashtag my merch movement. Late last year, the U.S.-based Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, the UMAW, joined the U.K.'s featured artist coalition, the FAC, in calling for an end to all merch fees. This is an exploitive practice that interferes with one of the few ways fans can directly support artists in this challenging economic climate, and it must stop, declared the UMAW. The hashtag MyMerchCampaign calls on venues, festivals, and promoters to sign up as 100% venues that take no cut of sales. Adding to Ineffable's dozen or so properties, more than 125 North American venues have taken the pledge so far. Yeah. yeah, and I spent some time, I was telling you, I spent some time with uh, one of my artists this weekend, and they're booking a tour right now, and they've only had one venue that said, we're not going to budge on mm-hmm. that, and they're not going to play that venue. Right. All the other venues would either compromise with them or waive the fee completely. So hats off to the global My Merch uh, campaign, and there is a link in this article um, that you can click on to, you know, see the list of all of those venues that are participating. Um, we'll continue to report on this, but uh, uh, pretty interesting, dramatic changes. Yeah, well, you know, and we're we're getting pretty granular and all this stuff, but it's really important because it's such an important part of the economics of how a musician lives and supports themselves and, and acts. And yet there's just so many things underneath the surface that the general public doesn't know. And even those of us that are pretty in, in the know don't know sometimes. And um, yeah, it's just, it, it, this, this is going to continue to be a, a topics of discussion as we certainly head into 2023. But yeah, I can tell you right, right now, I'm already looking at uh, different venues and I am yeah. ready for the concert season, the, the spring, summer, fall concert season, because I want to go out oh, and see some music. I, I, I am right there with you. And really, the, the final thing I'll say is that if you looked at 2022 and now it's bleeding into 2023, really the theme is is fairness and transparency. And we're starting to see that with the copyright royalty board and, you know, what, what songwriters are being paid. And now we're seeing it with ticket pricing and this thing with merch. Look, it's not going to change overnight, but we've made some progress and we've had the same kind of uh, rules and regulations for almost a hundred years. So the fact that we're having some movement is really encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, we are going to wrap up the show. Boy, we sure want to thank our good friends over at the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town for supporting us and making the show happen. Couldn't do it without them. And, uh, you know, if you enjoy the show, we would certainly appreciate it if you tell one friend. That's all we ask. uh, That's all we ask. It's so simple. And for that, Jay washes your car. I mean, it's really simple. Look at that. Who wouldn't want to do that? So on behalf of my good friend, Jay Gilbert, and myself, we sure appreciate you listening in. And we will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.